Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard. Tonight, I am incredibly excited for our next guest. He is a five-time Ironman finisher, multiple ultramarathon finisher, published in fire engineering, 17 years in the fire service, last year summited Mount Rainier, and is a team member of the Grimp North America Champions. He has been a mentor of mine since, well, we were kids. So uh, with no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Ross Chapman. Ross, how are we doing? Oh, good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and thank you for the kind words, even though they uh, may be overinflated. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us where we're at right now. It's a little different than our normal studio. Sure. Well, uh, you know, we we kind of make a point to do family trips every year with you guys. And uh, one of the bucket list trips for us was making it out to Uray, which I'm not entirely sure I'm pronouncing correctly, but we're spending a week in Ridgeway next door to Uray, Colorado. And uh, doing some hiking, dealing with some toddler meltdowns from my end and yours, and, uh, you know, just trying to trying to take a little bit of time off, which has been fantastic. Yeah, so we are currently sitting on a porch of a house we rented in Ridgeway, and we figured what uh, what better time to get you on the podcast because you are not from, from Colorado. Uh, so tell us kind of where you're from and uh, just a little bit about yourself. Sure, well, I guess I should first say that I feel honored to even be in the in the same company of some of the guests that you guys have had so uh so thank you for that um i feel like i'm a little over my skis but i'll do the best that i can i am a uh currently a, a fire lieutenant with the arlington heights fire department uh, located outside of chicago uh, i got promoted june of 2019 and currently i'm assigned to a truck company we're a small department, especially by the standards of a lot of the people you have on the show. Uh, we have four stations. We run just over 10,000 calls a year, uh, heavy on EMS for sure. Um, we are ISO class one, which is a, a classification that we're pretty proud of, but it's a uh, we don't do a ton of fire duty. So I think our our job can be can be tough because we are we are constantly preparing for a problem that rarely presents itself so the, and you guys are, are well versed in that concept i mean that seems to be the norm and kind of standard of the fire service everyone always thinks of like chicago and fdny as the only people who see fire but when you look statistically where those line of duty deaths are they're in towns like yours and mine they're not uh, you know granted those bigger departments obviously have uh, uh tragedies that happen but the by and large the smaller departments see a greater uh, number of those tragedies and to me it's it's because they don't think it's going to happen to them and they think it's it's just a house fire like we don't have these big buildings we don't have high rises but it's the single family homes that that are the killers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, and there's a lot of people who have gone down the path that, that you and I have, even though our paths have, have kind of gone different directions, but we started in the fire services volunteers 
17 years ago, which, by the way, makes me feel really old. <laughs> at, at 35, I don't feel like I should be saying that we've been doing this for 17 years. But, uh, you know, we started as volunteers, and uh, we're given some pretty incredible opportunities. You know, the late, the uh, the volunteer fire service is, is really something special. In parts of the country like New England, it's, you know, it's very prevalent, and it's not as prevalent where we grew up. And we were really lucky to have that opportunity we were given opportunities at a young age that that no one had, which has I think shaped the the path that we've both taken. You know, it's it's certainly easy to uh, to look back at those times and think about some of the stuff you did and how you were lucky nobody got killed. But looking back, also I think about the opportunities we were given with when a lot of our friends were at frat parties and skipping classes, and we were getting to go to fires and accidents and you know domestic disputes and and acting way above our our maturity level which i think gave us really good tools going forward i was at university of iowa had absolutely no intention to get into the fire service at all and i remember either calling you or it was i think it was the first year that iowa got facebook uh, if that dates us at all you were telling me about all this incredible stuff you were doing and I was sitting in my dorm room at the time, Stanley Hall for all you Hawkeyes. And I was like, man, that's that's what I want to do. Right after that, I transferred to a college that was right next to the place that we volunteered at. And, you know, that kind of that kind of kicked it all off. And, you know, you look back and you're starting a career in the fire service and you don't get the latitude in a career department that you do at the volunteer level? So my journey to the fire service was one that was not planned and has kind of happened through the a little bit of luck and a lot of really good people giving me the benefit of the doubt, I think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I started, uh, I graduated high school. You and I graduated 2003. I remember distinctly the that there was a group of guys who were volunteer firefighters in high school, like cadet programs. And I remember thinking those guys were just total losers in high school. Graduated high school. I went to school at Ohio State. Midway through my freshman year, my parents announced they're getting divorced. I have two younger siblings at the time, which are six hours from home. And I can't focus on school. I don't want to be there anymore. So I come back. And when I come back, a friend at the time was a volunteer firefighter in Ohio, and he was a paramedic as well. And I remember him saying, you know, you're going to be home. All your friends are away at school. You should look into getting your EMT license. And uh, I was like, well, what would I do with that? He's like, oh, it's just something kind of fun. You can go to school at night, and uh, you might like it. So all my friends were gone. You were at school at Iowa along with everybody else. And uh, I was going taking classes at, at Lake Forest College at the time and doing a little bit of construction on my days off uh, from school. And I didn't have much going on at night, so I signed up for an EMT class at College of Lake County. And I remember the first night 
they asked the students, how many of you guys want to be career firefighters? And everyone raised their hand except me. And they asked me, what are you doing here? And I said, honestly, I'm just looking to do something and to meet some people because all my friends are gone. And uh, a couple a couple of weeks later, as we're progressing through the class, I'm starting to like it. They tell us you need to get 30 hours of ride time to get your EMT license. And you need to find your local fire department and ride with them to get the 30 hours. So I go to the Lake Bluff Fire Department where I've grown up, My, you know, since I was basically 10 years old and I don't know anything about a fire department. I don't know anything about an ambulance. I just know that I just learned how to check blood pressures and uh, I'm ready to get my ride time. So I walk in and I start talking to these people and uh, sure enough, one of those guys who I thought was a loser in high school comes around the corner and, you know, gives me a big hug, which I didn't deserve. And uh, says, we'd love to have you. Uh, but just so you know, you can't get any, medical hours without being cross-trained as a volunteer firefighter. So I said, okay, well, what do I need to do that? And he said, well, you need to start coming to drills every Tuesday night and we do live fire trainings on Saturdays. And if you start doing that over the course of a year, you'll be trained and you'll start responding on calls. You'll get checked off on your air pack. And eventually at the end of the year, you'll get your badge, which was kind of like the completion of probation. And, uh, but during that first year, you can get your ride time. That would give me what I needed for my EMT. So I said, okay, well, obviously that's what I have to do. So, so I started doing that and, uh, I didn't know anything about anything at the time. I loved it. And it gave me some purpose and made me feel like I was doing something other than kind of a college dropout, which is what I basically was, even though I was still taking classes. I remember you being away at school and you, you came back, I think it was for Thanksgiving break and we were driving around and I was telling you about it. And I was like, man, this is really something, but it still was never something that I saw as a career. It just was something that was like a hobby. Once you came back from school, I think you and I kind of feed off of each other, which has been pretty beneficial for both of us throughout our lives. And, Sometimes uh, it can be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, story for another podcast. But uh, when we when we started being roommates and both doing the volunteer fire service, you and I both started seeking out formal training opportunities that this volunteer fire department had was full of in-house training, and no one had ever gone and sought out the classes that all the career firefighters were taking. And we we weren't afraid to go after those, and we signed up, took the fire academy, which was called Firefighter 2 at the time in Illinois, started taking the technical rescue classes, and went to paramedic school. From there, we were, in order to complete our paramedic school, we had to ride with ALS ambulance, and the nearest one was Lake Forest Fire Department, which was the town over, which also provided the ALS service to Lake Bluff. Lake Bluff was staffing basically first responders, but no ambulance of their own so through our through our time as emts we got to meet those lake forest paramedics and they were they welcomed us with open arms and we were able to kind of create our own jobs over there basically as paid on premise firefighter paramedic students i mean i really you know we're 21 years old we're riding on ambulances with uh with professionals and it just was a really you know, kind of a, I guess a, a career and life shaping experience. And that opened the door to, for us to go, to go to where we are now. Tell me about the testing process back in Illinois. 
as opposed to maybe some other places around the country and like how long did it take you to get hired? How many tests did you take? Things like that. Sure. Well, you know, we had done a couple of years as volunteer firefighters and we, I think we realized that there was more training out there than what was being held on an in-house basis. And we enrolled at the Arlington Heights Fire Academy, which was the gold standard of fire service training in Northern Illinois at the time. And while we were there, we went through the 12 week program. I remember being there and talking to the instructors and them saying, you'd never get hired here. There's hundreds of people who apply. You'll never get the job. What those instructors exemplify the way they carried themselves. It really appealed to me at the time. I just felt like they were professionals. I wanted to work in Arlington Heights and I didn't have a real good reason for it other than those instructors made such an impression on me, which, you know, speaks to the, the influence that a good instructor can have, especially on a young firefighter or a young person. So after finishing the academy, I turned 21 I think I, we finished the academy in July, and I turned 21 in August. I only tonight's was one of the first tests I took, and I got really lucky. I scored well on my second stroke of luck. Arlington Heights was chosen as a recipient of a safer grant, and they ended up hiring nine guys to put a uh, new piece of equipment in service. And I was fortunate enough to get hired with nine guys that March. So I was 21 years old, which is the the earliest you can become a career firefighter in Illinois, and I got hired there. The testing process in Illinois is probably similar to what you see across the country. Obviously, the written test, physical agility exam, a couple of different interviews, uh, psychological screening, and then a polygraph. And I think that process weeds out a lot of people. And I was fortunate that I uh, that I was able to get through everything, and, and I got picked as one of those nine guys who got hired. You spent a lot of time as a backstep some other places that are maybe growing a lot faster there might be or or younger departments there might be some lieutenants who might have five years on the job you had a lot and you've recently become a lieutenant and it's a smaller place I think at bigger places you can kind of go to a new crew who doesn't know you they you know, they, they've seen you grow up through the fire service. Then you get you get a promotion, and then now you're telling them what to do. Like, talk to me about the process of trying to navigate leading your friends or even harder, like leading the people that you had problems with when when you were a blue shirt. Yeah, so I had, a, I had the opportunity to function as a firefighter paramedic, um, you know, what we would call a tailboard, um, for 12 years. A lot of that time was on an ambulance. And like I said, the community I work for, we don't get a ton of, of fire duty. That being said, we have personnel issues. We have all, all the issues you would find at a busier or bigger department. Um, and you know, to take nothing away from us, we are, we are busy for the, for the size community that we are. But that being said, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I've been fortunate. I, I work with some really exceptional people who have given me the opportunity to do a lot of different things, and they give me a lot of a lot of leeway. I think that because of some of the stuff that we've been involved in, you know, on the physical side, the triathlons, the marathons, and things like that, I try to bring that mentality to the firehouse every day, you know, trying to get after it, trying to 
incorporate the physical fitness aspect into the fire service. I think I've done that since day one because I've always recognized that this is a physical job and physical training is critical to it. I think that I've become much more aware of it the longer I've been there. I think I've always been consistent. I like to think that I've always been kind of a hard charger, kind of trying to get after it every day, trying to always seek out training, always taking more classes. And I don't think you have to say anything as a company officer or as a firefighter, but by just doing those things and by constantly trying to better yourself, people know and people accept the fact that when you're bringing something to them, it's something that you've gone out often on your own time and on your own dime to obtain that knowledge. And when you bring it to them, I think they, they respect that. It's not just something that you read in a book and now you're going to try to implement and, and push on them. And you and I have done a lot of stuff that's taken vacation days and, you know, considerable money to, to, to achieve. And when you do that, nothing has to be said. You just guys know. And, and when you try to bring those lessons and and skills back, I think it's, it's easier to um, find it, find acceptance for it. We have a lot of people. I mean, I, I think honestly, even Tom, myself, they had like a, almost like a, a season in their career that wasn't where we all are now. What about the folks who just started this new season of actually giving a shit and they are officers or newly promoted or they're going to take the test and they're like, listen, when I get this promotion, I'm going to like, I'm going to turn this around. How do you navigate this like new responsibility? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I think the, the first, you know, three or four months is going to make or break your whole career as a, as an officer, because if you're trying to figure it out in that initial phase and, and you're just kind of stumbling through, those guys are going to pick up on that. And once they get in the mindset of, Hey, this guy's a substitute teacher. He doesn't have it figured out. We're going to walk all over him. And that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination you need to be a disciplinarian or you need to be, you know, the so-called company man. But you need to know your skills as a firefighter. You need to be proficient in those skills. You also need to be willing to mess up. Number one, you got to surround yourself with the right people. And I've been fortunate to have that, you being one of the, the prime examples of that, both in the fire service and, on, you know, in some of the side work. The biggest thing I think is you have to come in on day one, ready to work. And, you know, the cliche is like lead from the front, of course, but I think that really is important. And you have to be willing to mess up from the front. And I have absolutely no fear of doing that and no shame of that. Let me give you an example. The, uh, I got assigned to a truck company pretty quickly after getting promoted. And it was just by chance. It's really a spot that I wouldn't have gotten until much later in my career because it's a pretty sought after position, but I was lucky the way it works in our department as a float lieutenant, which is where the newly promoted officers go, if someone gets promoted from one of the spots, you fill in there for the year, which is what I'm currently doing in my in my assignment. I got assigned to the truck company pretty quick. Going in there, I hadn't been on a truck company ever in my career. I uh, hadn't taken truck classes. I didn't feel like my truck skills were where they should be. So I started reading. I started watching YouTube. I signed up for truck company classes 
and tried to, you know, better my skills in preparation for going there, but I didn't have a ton of time. So once I got there, I knew that I was going to have to practice those skills and I knew that I was going to have to show my weaknesses right off the bat. And after listening to some of the podcasts you guys have done and the the books that I've read, I decided that I'm just going to embrace failure and I'm going to show these guys that I'm going to mess up and I'm going to mess up publicly and I'm going to own it and I'm going to work to get better because that's the only way that I was going to improve. One of the things that mile high training that you're involved with is really good about is showing some of the great ladder evolutions you guys do a lot of portable ladder work and it was something that I knew individually I needed to work on so I started working on those personal skills and working on like with my crew I dumped that 28 foot ladder on my head more times than I can count okay and I dumped it on my head within the first couple of days being on shift with those guys because I'd never thrown a 28-foot ladder by myself. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm still working on it, and it's not the easiest thing. You guys make it look a lot easier than it is. And I dump that thing on my head frequently. But after seeing me do it, I think those guys understood that they're not going to be chastised for failure. And to me, that was the one of the biggest things I wanted to correct going to a crew because – um, I think it was Matt Chan that you guys had on your podcast, and he mentioned how we eat our young in the fire service. And that really resonated with me because these guys oftentimes are afraid to perform skills, and that's why they sit back in training and put their hands in their pockets or talk about how whatever we're doing is stupid. I think it's because they're afraid of getting exposed. And the reason for that is because when they fail – they get destroyed at the kitchen table the next morning by people who weren't doing anything to begin with. So I told the guys like my first day, Hey, don't be afraid to fail. I'm going to fail and we're going to fix it together. But that dirty laundry doesn't need to be aired to the next shift. We should, we should not be afraid to screw up here and work to make it better. But that doesn't mean we, we need to, you know, backstab and trash talk our 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 guys. You know, that's not what crew's about. Yeah, I think that I think that's like an awful way to create a good culture at your station. I mean, anyone could throw a twenty eight foot ladder or a thirty five by themselves from the tail or you know, like you're sitting on the front bumper and you say you can do all these things, but like, let's see it. And to be honest with you, you're gonna wear that thing like a hat for like months and then you'll finally get it. And that's awesome. And, you know, you think about it, you've got like 30 years in this career and you think that your first 16 weeks of the academy and like the one year you have on probation, what are you going to do with the rest of that time? You know, like I just, it, it just seems so silly to me to think that and boring, like boring to not try and push yourself for the last 29 years of your career. Like you just, you did everything you needed to do in, in that first year. Yeah. hundred percent. I, and I mean, I, I, I truly love this job. It's not a job that I ever thought I was going to have, nor was it a job I thought I was going to love. And I love all aspects, aspects of it. I love being a company officer. I love training with the guys, you know, and it's, it's a, um, you know, like like the saying says, like Rome wasn't built in a day. We got to chip away at this. And you know, one of the one of the first things I saw when I came to my crew was 
you know, we're a truck company. Ladders is a is bread and butter for us. So the first day I said, hey, like, let's go out and throw some ladders. Just see where we're all at. Knowing full well that I'm not where I should be. And, uh, and I'm going to show you that I'm not where I should be. So you're not afraid to show me where you're at. And together we will work on this. And uh, so I came out ready to do ladder training, full bunker gear, pack, gloves, because if I'm going to throw ladders on the fire ground, that's what I'm going to be wearing. Well, the guys I was working with came out in, in gloves and helmets because that's kind of the standard of, of what we do. We do ladder training where we don't put our PPE on. Well, obviously, and I think most of the listeners of your show would agree, that that's probably not the situation that you're going to be throwing a ladder in. And uh, when they saw me doing it, I didn't have to say anything. Those guys went inside and put their gear on because the officer is doing it. And now, you know, after being there for almost a year, everybody knows we're we're doing ladder training. They're going to have all their gear on, or they're probably going to get, you know, chided a little bit by the other guys like, oh, it's too hot out here for you to uh, put your coat on or, or whatever the case is. And that's the that's the culture that you want. You want guys to make each other better. But also those guys know that, hey, you know, there's a time and a place for, you know, if we're learning the skill, yeah, we're going to do it in, in you know, Class D uniforms, you know, pants and, and helmets and gloves. Or, hey, like, we've got the skill. Now we need to get better at it. We need to be in full gear. We need to run this like we're going to do it on the fire ground. Yeah, man. I, I if, if anyone is a new officer looking to figure out what the roadmap to getting your company in gear, that's it right there. It's your first few months as a new officer, do exactly that. Go out, fail in front of each other, and you set the standard. And, you know, it, it, Tom says it all the time. Like You never lower your standards. You make people raise theirs. You know, you talked uh, about the the latter thing about failing and being like really accepting of that failure, and it makes me think of when you were training for the first Ironman. You you didn't know how to swim. You're you're a shitty swimmer, <laughs> and so instead of being like, "Well, I'll just never do that thing," then I'll just avoid this weakness because you've been a in, in, incredible runner your entire life. You're like, oh, I'm going to take lessons. And when you started taking lessons from the doggy paddle, you're like, oh, now I'm going to be now I'm going to be an Ironman. And you went on to to smoke me in every single one of our events, uh, every single one of our races that we did. And that's the, the kind of mentality that you've had throughout your life, which is which is incredibly per, uh, impressive. Speaking of those kinds of races, like why do you like to do those things? Sure. Well, let's not forget the fact that uh, I I probably would never have done an Ironman if it wasn't for people who refused to let me quit. You know, you you need those people in your life who are going to who are not going to take no for an answer. Those people can kind of carry you until you become the person who doesn't take no for an answer. I think. Who was that for you? Uh, so you know, one of our good friends uh, growing up, his father had a um, had a real nasty bout with cancer and after he after he beat it he decided he was going to do Ironmans and uh, again Ironman being something I know had no interest in you're probably starting to see a trend here and uh, triathlon was something I had no interest in because it was going to showcase a glaring weakness in my fitness which was the fact that I could not swim now I could 
I could play in the water and I could go to the beach. You could float. Yeah. You're a good floater. Yeah. I could do all those things. And if you had seen me at a, at a pool, you never would have known. But if you asked me to swim two laps, I would have been totally smoked if I'd been able to finish it. Let's talk about that for a second, I guess. I had been swimming in a pool. I got lessons and uh, I was feeling pretty good about it. I was, uh, I was swimming a mile in the pool. We were, we had signed up for a half Ironman Austin 70.3. I was feeling pretty good. And the first kind of tune-up race of the year was a Olympic distance triathlon. It was going to be my first true triathlon. And we go out, um, a couple of guys and myself went out to do a practice swim in the lake the night before, like the week before the race. Thankfully, this is a uh, organized swim with lifeguards and kayaks, and that will come back in, in this story. <laughs> I got a brand new wetsuit. I've been swimming up to a mile in the pool, no problem. I'm feeling pretty good about this. Everyone's telling me that you can't drown in a wetsuit, which I would beg to differ. <laughs> we go out, start this swim, and probably within the first two or 300 yards, we're swimming across this lake, and I would guess it's about a half mile across, and I'm not anywhere close to being on the other side, I start to have a full-blown panic attack. And I've never had a panic attack, um, but I can't reach the bottom. This wetsuit feels like it's suffocating me, and I feel like I'm going to drown. It is a completely irrational response, and I, I, can't, I can't control it at the time. So I uh, grab onto one of the lifeguard's kayaks, and I take a, uh, one of the most shameful rides in of my life. And about half an hour later, my friends show up and um, are giving me a pretty hard time about it. And we go home, and the next morning, I'm on my way into work. It's probably about 5.30 in the morning. My phone rings, and Lee, our friend's dad, call, is on the phone. And he says, what happened last night? And I he said, doesn't sound like that. What, is, <laughs> what does he sound like? <laughs> he says, what the hell happened last night? And I said... It didn't go too well. He said, what do you mean it didn't go too well? And I said, I don't think this triathlon thing is is, is my thing. I'm, I'm a good runner. I'm just going to stick to that. I don't have any interest in doing Ironman for crazy people. Um, and he said, okay. He said, are you done? And I said, yeah. He said, now you shut the fuck up and listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> And when Lee talks, you listen, because he's a man of few words. And he said, you think you're the only person who's ever panicked in the water? You think I haven't panicked in the water? Now here's what you're going to do. You're going to get in that water tonight, and you're going to swim. And then you're getting the water tomorrow, and you're going to swim. And you're going to get in that water every day until you're not scared of it anymore. And then you're going to be ready. And that was a pretty hard pill for me to swallow. Uh, There's a guy I looked up to, and I didn't feel like I could let him down, even though I wanted to quit with every ounce of my being. So I got in the water. I got open water swim lessons, and I kept getting in the water. And, uh, and you know, here we are. And I guess the reason I do that is because it, it, it tells me that, it, you know, it's a uh, – it's something that I never thought I could do. So every time I do it, I feel – like I've accomplished something and uh and I love the uh I love the game of the of the triathlon of the endurance races I love the mental the mental fight that you have the uh kind of the tactics trying to plan the whole race trying to figure out 
where you need to be at what time and, and how to control your nutrition and your physical effort based on how far you have to go. And so that to me is a huge draw. A lot of people think that sort of thing is crazy, but for me, really, it's, it's not, it's less about athletics and more about how willing are you to suffer and how much, how much do you want it? And, uh, and I like that. I like that challenge. Uh, I absolutely love that story for a lot of reasons. One, because Lee has been like an incredible inspiration uh, to all of us who who know him. It's also like a great reminder of, I don't know, I don't know what you call it, tough love or just a realization that if you think you are special because you're suffering, you are not. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, there is a a moment in a lot of these race, every race, and a lot of moments in your life where, you know, I call them the demons, other call them the voices. Lee calls them the dark place, where you find yourself, and sometimes you want to cry, sometimes you want to, you always want to give up. Uh, tell me about some of those times for you and how you deal with them are you looking forward to them and like what they mean to you yeah i mean i think you know at least when it comes to endurance racing the more you you get to that spot the more comfortable you are there and um you know that goes for for a lot of things in life you know if you look at it through the lens of the fire service and training the more often you train the more comfortable you are doing more training and and the more comfortable you are putting that training into into practice on the fire ground um but on the endurance side the more uncomfortable you get the more you subject yourself to that that place the uh the more prepared you are for it and you know there's uh there's guys you know we have a guy who just kills it uh he, he does ironmans and he hardly trains for him and uh he just refuses to give up and just welcomes the suffering. Now, I would argue that the 100-mile bike rides that you do training for the Ironman are less about the mileage and more about the mental strength that you build in something like that. Because during the Ironman race, you're out there for five, six hours, and you've got packed crowds on both sides of the road, and it's exciting and I mean, that excitement obviously wears off over a 12 or 14 hour day, but that becomes the fun part. The hard part is the day after day, morning after morning, getting up and going to the pool by yourself, getting in the cold water, running by yourself, getting on the bike for five, six hours, and then coming home and having to hang out with your kids or go to the firehouse the next day or mow the lawn, do all the stuff that we are expected to do as adults. The training is what makes you. The training is what creates the um, the satisfaction on race day. It's not, to me, it's never been about completing the race. It's about completing this six or eight month journey to the race. The race is the finishing, you know, the feather in the cap. Yeah, it's just it's the difference between and we talk about it in our in our class, it's the difference between motivation and discipline. And it's real easy to get motivated for that next mile when you have, you know, wall to wall people 
you know, screaming and, you know, all the cowbells you could possibly want. And it's the discipline that gets you there. And you'd always call race day your victory lap because the work's done. And it's a direct translation to work. It's the every single morning we get our gear on and, you know, I'm on a ladder company. So we throw ladders in the morning. We call them our warmups. That's the discipline of, man, I just did this two days ago. Like, obviously I know how to do it. But when game day happens, there, there's no time for any more practice. And it's that discipline that, that'll, that'll kind of get you to the finish line. Yeah, I agree. You know, and how do you, how do you create that game day environment on a suburban fire department where you're not going to that many fires? And I, I think that, uh, you know, what, what we've done on, on my shift is we are, we are really trying to improve and perfect the basics. What's exciting for me as an officer and just a member of that unit is the guys getting into it. And uh, let me give you an example. One of the guests you had on your show really resonated with me. And one of the things he was talking about was treating every call as like a dry run and treating every call as if it's on fire. You know, that expect fire, expect victims mentality. And what we've done on our shift, and I can't take any of the credit for this, uh, I have a battalion chief who is extremely aggressive, and he has sets very high expectations, not only for me, but for every member of the shift. And he wants those rigs in position perfectly on every response. Okay, now this may seem to you or some of your listeners as, well, of course, like that's what you do. But I can tell you from the experience that I have is that's not what always happens. A lot of times you have vehicles stacked up on a street and they're just waiting to either get returned or uh, to be told to to move up. They're not the engine is not dropping a hose line in the front yard and pulling forward to leave room for the truck. The second engine isn't backing down to feed the ladder truck. You know, you have ambulances and, and other, you know, vehicles in the way. That doesn't always happen. And on our shift, we've really made that a priority. And we're trying to treat all these calls as real. We're trying to get the stick up on every reported fire on our ladder truck. We're trying to do these things so that when game day does show up, we're ready but also it's given us these great training opportunities and the guys are getting excited again and the guys starting to feel like firemen, which is exactly what you want as a company officer is to get your guys excited about the job and motivated to be better. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about something that is, to me, like one of the more exciting things that I see happening in the fire service and, and I certainly the... The fire side of the house is obviously the passion of, you know, me, Tom, and technical rescue has been a passion for me since we started. And you have helped build, hands down, one of the best training and service companies in the world. And I don't say that as a hyperbole like i it's it is a fact you guys uh at elevated safety have won grip north america then you went over to europe placed top 10 and putting on some of the most exciting cutting edge trainings that 
that are out there right now. So tell me about how you got involved with Elevated Safety and where is it at now? Sure. So like like I said, you're going to see a trend where I end up in things that I never had any interest in or, or never had any business in probably. But I, uh, you and I went through uh, rope rescue operations, which in Illinois is kind of the initial rope training for firefighters, a 40-hour class where you learn how to tie knots and do basic patient packaging, construct haul systems, that sort of thing, mostly low angle. So we took that class, and I remember walking out of the class on Friday and feeling like I had never been more confused, and I couldn't even probably tie my shoes at that point. Thankfully, I'm pretty hard-headed from there. I felt like I needed to get better at this topic because rope serves as a foundation for a lot of the other technical rescue. And, uh, you know, confined space is rope rescue in a hole, basically. And I, I felt like this was something that I had to improve on. I'm not the most mechanical guy by nature. I don't see things as easily as some other people, so I have to work harder to figure them out. And I do that just by reps and more reps. So uh, I took more classes, and I took um, a class. I took my Sprat Level 1 with a company called Elevated Safety, which you uh, referred to. And Elevated Safety had been founded by a Displains firefighter, a, a neighboring suburb to me. He was teaching the class all week, and uh, a guy by the name of Colin Moon. And Colin is a is a savant when it comes to rope. I mean, he sees things that no one else sees. He's just an incredible knowledge source for uh, for that topic, and just one of the all around smartest people I've ever come in come in contact with. So I'm in this class. I'm struggling my way through it, and there's another guy in the class, uh, a guy by the name of Nate Paulsberg. Palatine lieutenant, another suburb nearby. Uh, he's killing it all week. Take my level one. I pass barely. Talking with Colin, the owner, and he's what said, is Sprat, by the way? Sure. So Sprat is the Society of Professional Rope Access Technicians, and it's a uh, it's traditionally been a industrial focused certification for rope access workers. There's three levels of certification: level one being an entry level. Level two being what's considered like a lead rope access technician at level three, which is considered a rope access supervisor. And in order to advance beyond each level, 500 hours of on-rope time needs to be accumulated. Then you come in and you have to take a test uh, with more advanced maneuvers. So level three culminating with basically a, a large number of rescues. So I, I pass my level one and I start talking with Colin and he's generous enough to put me on some jobs with him and I keep in contact with Nate and Nate's doing the same thing albeit a lot more proficiently than I am like what kind of job like because this isn't fire service guys right correct so Colin had gotten in with like high-rise painting and inspection projects and um, some small rope access type jobs changing out light bulbs on unique structures and things like that. And then he was also doing some training, Sprat training for industrial workers. So I had the opportunity to start teaching some of that. And, uh, you know, by teaching something, you better figure it out because you're going to get exposed right away. And if you, if you want to get good at something, start teaching it because most of us are very averse to looking like a fool in front of our peers. And I'm one of those people. 
I'm not afraid to fail, but I also don't want to get up in front of a group of people who are going to think I'm an idiot. So I started teaching and I started, that forced me to get better. So I was, I was fortunate enough to keep doing these trainings and I was starting to improve and my skills were starting to get better. And Nate and I became pretty good friends during, during the process of working on these jobs and seeing each other at some fire department trainings between the between Palatine and Arlington Heights. I'm on a job in Nebraska with Colin. You know, I'm always kind of scheming as to, you know, what the next what the next big thing is. I had decided at this point that I thought elevated safety could really become next level. Colin was pretty busy. He had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, so I was thinking, you know, maybe I could maybe I could start my own business doing this. And I had talked to Nate and Nate was on board with it. I knew Nate was a guy that I would, you know, work well with. So I'm out in Nebraska. We're on a three-hour drive, Colin and I, and I say to him, you know, hey, I'm thinking about starting a business. I don't want to compete with elevated safety, but I'm sort of looking at the same type of work. What do you think? Like, how would you do it if you were going to do it again? And he said, well, if I were you, I would just buy a, a business that was already established. And I said, yeah, you know, but it's kind of a unique field. You know, where am I going to find one? And he says, why don't you buy elevated safety? And we pull over to get gas, and I call Nate from the bathroom or something. And I was like, Hey man, Colin's interested in selling. What do you think? And he was like kind of shocked. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. One thing led to another and we bought elevated safety from him. We just started, uh, started doing what, what we thought was best. I have no business. Uh, I have no background in, in business. Um, Nate served in the Navy as an officer and has a business degree which has been, you know, both those skill sets have been beneficial for us, for sure. Um, he's also an Ironman. And when we took over the business, we knew that this was a bigger a bigger apple than either one of us could could take on ourselves. So we divided up the, the responsibilities. We started putting some other people in place. Uh, we knew that gear sales was a huge part of the business. So we established a gear sales division with a with a person dedicated to that operation. Then we just started started teaching and started doing classes and, and trying to, to build the brand. You know, thankfully, with a lot of really talented people, that brand has become um, what it is now. I think the coolest part about what Elevated Safety has done is it's taking the, in, the, the years and years of industrial work Right. So these folks have been on rope way more than everyone in the fire service probably combined and taking those same tactics and they're bringing it into the fire service. So this standard top down rescue with these bloated teams of, you know, eight, 10, 12 guys to do a rescue, they can do the same work with half the people in a quarter of the time. And I think that is the the most interesting part uh, about all this. So you have, you have the fire service going on, you got the Iron Man going on, uh, and then now you purchased a business, you are going out doing jobs, and then you have a beautiful baby girl. How are you fitting all that in and tell me what it means to you to provide for your family? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot when you say that, um, <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs> the, uh, 
you know, so elevated safety has been, uh, has been really great. And, uh, and I've had, again, I've had the opportunity to do stuff that I never thought I would do go go to places. I never thought that I would go work with people who are far ta- more talented than I am. And, uh, just to be around those people has, has made me better. You know, a lot of these guys are extremely driven, um, extremely motivated and, you know, pretty dedicated to their families. And, uh, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough act to follow. And, uh, you know, if you ever feel like you're overwhelmed, I can call one of these guys and they've got, you know, three kids and they're coaching sports and they're managing a firehouse schedule and doing, you know, rope work on the side. So, uh, I'm not getting a whole lot of sympathy from any of these people, I guess is the bottom line. It is a, uh, it is a challenge to provide for your family and to, and to be, you know, what you, what you want to be professionally, whether it's at the firehouse or on the side or whatever career you've chosen. And I am a, I'm a hundred percent guilty of, of saying yes to everything in my life because there's so many good opportunities that come up and you don't want to miss any of those. But when you have it, when you have a kid or you have a family, I think you really, at least for me, I really had to sit down and sort of align my priorities and figure out like, what is the mission here? Where, where is this going for me? And I, I can't speak for everybody, but like family has to come first and everybody says family comes first, but a lot of people say family comes first, but then they make decisions that put their family second or third or, or even further down the line. So I try to use that as sort of the guide. And that's not to say that I don't travel for work. It's not to say I don't work 48s or take overtime. I do all those things, but I try to be selective about the opportunities I do take. And I try to really be present as much as I can at home. And that's not always easy. There's a lot of distractions. My cell phone goes off 24 hours a day. I feel like there's always something. So it's hard for me to, to disconnect and to sit down and read, you know, bedtime stories when I've got, you know, other stuff coming in that feels more pressing, but that's like really what it's all about. So it's a, it's a daily struggle for me. There's, there's not any doubt about it. I don't have it figured out. Um, but I try to, to always keep that in the front of my mind that, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do for your family. And and I think we, especially myself, we fall into this, this trap of, I'm going to pick up this overtime shift because my family needs the money. I'm going to go teach this class for five days because if I, if I do that, we're going to get this for my family. And meanwhile, your wife or your kids or whatever you have going on at home is, is left to pick up the slack that you left. And reality, they may not want that $1,000 or that $2,000. Sure, it's nice to have, but what they really want is you to be home and it's hard for us to to grasp that and sometimes you just have to pass on those jobs or that overtime to be home and with your family and doing that stuff because that really is what it's all about yeah you hit the nail on the head it's uh keeping a honest like view of the mission of am i doing this because of my ego or am i trying to fit this thing that i really want to do into this box of like, Oh, it's for my family. Like, is it really for your family? Or do you really just want to a get away? B maybe it's a really cool opportunity that you want to go do. And 
man, it, sometimes it's really hard to like find the find the line of it. Right now, doing this podcast is a phenomenal example, right? Like we had to wait until ten thirty at night to record this podcast because we have our wives and kids here and the most important thing was to be able to go out and do what we did today and you know it's if you want to do all these other things them coming first has to be the number one slot like they get the number one slot and I think that's the hardest part is trying to figure out whether what you're doing is for you or for the, truly for them. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think a lot of times we do things for ourselves under the guise that it's for our family and that makes it easier for us to manage. And don't for a second think that I have this whole thing figured out because I don't, I still pick up hire backs and things like that. And I sit there for half the day and think about how I'm missing something or, or whatever. This is something that I fight Every day, it doesn't come naturally for me to hang out at home and, you know, go down the slide 150 times in the morning. But it's something that I'm working on. And and when I look at the the mission for my life, I want the number one thing is my daughter to be like, my dad was there and he was fantastic. And I don't want to be, I want to be a really good fire officer. I want to be a really good director of a business. I want all those things. But at the end of the day, what's going to be most important to me is that she's, I lived up to what she wanted and what she needed and what she deserved because a lot of kids don't get that. And if at the end of the day, that's all I can say, then that'll be enough. So, um, not to get, you know, too far down the, uh, the emotional path, I guess, but, uh, but that is the number one priority. So, so how do we do that, you know, in, in your, in your daily life? And, uh, a book I read called essentialism basically summed it up for me. The one line out of the book that resonated the most was if someone asks you to do something or someone presents you with an opportunity, the answer is either hell yes, or it's a no, it's not a, yeah, that's probably a good idea or yeah, I should do that. If that's your response to the opportunity that's presented, then your answer is no, if the the response is hell yes, then absolutely you should do that. And that really for me has been a uh, kind of a game changer in how I how I make decisions on how I'm going to spend my time. You know what what would you say to someone who might be having a having a kid soon, or you have another one on the way? Like, what are what's some advice? My advice would be get advice from someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, Obviously, no one knows what they're doing with this stuff. You know, it starts with, you know, hopefully you've chosen the correct spouse or significant other, whatever it is. You know, I think you and I have been both been very fortunate in that category. You know, my wife's a pediatric nurse practitioner, so I basically, uh, you know, have a uh, have an on-site resource for uh, any and all kids' questions, which is a huge benefit for me. And, you know, someone who is used to managing stress and crises you know kind of autonomously which is something that I can't really over over hype or overestimate because you know as firemen and as people working side jobs we're gone a lot uh, even if you take the side work away you're gone 100 nights a year and that means one third of the time that your kid 
falls and needs stitches or throws up or can't sleep, your significant other is going to be there to manage this situation by themselves. It's really important that you have chosen that person correctly and then that person fully grasps what they're dealing with because these are situations that aren't going anywhere. Uh, I hope that I have the good luck to be a fireman for the next 20 years, which means that my wife is going to be managing those situations for the entire duration of our kids' lives. So, you know, when they're at home, I think that's, that's critical that you've chosen the right spouse and that your spouse gets it. Now, when it comes to being a parent, I think you're going to learn everything as you go. Your perspective is going to totally change. And when you, when you have a, you know, everyone tells you it changes everything and then it definitely changes everything. (laughs) They didn't tell you (laughs) how much it changes everything. And that's a good thing. And you look at everything through a different lens. It's terrific. And I wouldn't change any of it, but you have to, you have to be willing to embrace that. The things that are important to you are going to change. The things that you do have a bigger impact than just you. I guess my advice is to just be there for, for them, you know, do the stuff that, that you need to do professionally and say yes to the opportunities that are, that are the hell yes opportunities. But also, you know, your family is the ultimate hell yes. And that is something that you got to remind yourself constantly of because you can get sucked into a vortex of the firehouse and side work and going out with your buddies and doing all the stuff you did when you were a single guy or or before those kids were there. And uh, you're going to miss stuff that you're never going to get back. Those work opportunities will be there. You know, do the stuff that makes you succeed professionally, but you got to succeed personally also. It's an incredible honor to be here. And uh, and like I said, I, I really feel like I'm nothing more than the product of a lot of people who have placed their, you know, faith in me. And, uh, and I hope I haven't let them down. You know, I've had great, great mentors, great friends, and, and all those people have been, you guys always talk about, you know, I forget what exactly it is, iron sharpens iron. And, uh, you know, couldn't be more more true if you surround yourself by people who are good parents good firemen are you know aggressive and successful aren't afraid to screw up you know that will become part of who you are too so i can't i can't thank uh you guys enough for having me on this podcast has really been something that i have always referred back to when i'm i'm having days where i'm checked out or i'm discouraged you know i love to come you know, download one of the podcasts and listen to somebody else dealing with the same stuff that I am and uh, kind of gets me rejuvenated and excited about the job again. You know, just like I said, thanks again. 